wealth gap puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in distribution. What's needed is an airing of family secrets, a settling with old ghosts, a healing of the American psyche and banishment of white guilt. Welcome to The Shrinks on Third, our psychology and social justice podcast. I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. And I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. Welcome in. Today, Cindy and I are going to talk about reparations. It's a complicated topic and uh, people tend to have knee-jerk reactions to it. Yes, they do. That's true, Julie. People become frightened that something is going to be demanded of them, but maybe it should be. Let's look into it. Yeah, that's what we're going to do today. The history of the United States is absolutely littered with countless broken treaties and promises to the indigenous people and to the formerly enslaved Black people. Also true. African-Americans were brought here as slaves, first brought to Virginia in 1619, and they worked as enslaved people for 250 years. Enslaved Africans were stolen, ripped from their families, forced into hard labor. Our crimes against Black people didn't end with slavery, as you would know from listening to our podcast. Discriminatory laws and unequal distribution of wealth, they continue until this day. Yes, of course. Once slavery was supposedly over, enslaved people weren't truly free. We know that there were slave codes and Jim Crow laws. Things changed very little and very slowly. They were separate but unequal and in many ways are still treated that way. Land was taken from black families legally and illegally. If white men wanted it, they just took it. Authorities could claim money for debt or back taxes. Many black elders couldn't read because of course it had been illegal for them to learn how. So they didn't always know the laws and they didn't always have lawyers and they couldn't always pay lawyers and they faced racist law enforcement officers. They couldn't defend themselves through legal means or any other form of defense. And if they tried, they could get a violent reaction back. You could call it armed robbery as Ta-Nehisi Coates does. Yes, he does. And he's where we actually got some of these ideas from, actually a lot of them. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the fact in our podcast that black people fought in every war for our country. They helped to build the country in so many ways, yet they were degraded. It took a long time for them to achieve the right to vote, something we shouldn't have to achieve or fight for. But they were made second class. They were expected to walk in the street and give up the sidewalk if a white person was walking by, go in the back entrances to restaurants if they were even allowed in, to sit at the back of the bus, eat and drink separately, and do it all with a positive attitude as though it's all fine with them. Yeah. Ironically, the Capitol and the White House were built by enslaved people. That's how woven into our foundation racism is. Literally. That's what you really call built in. <laughs> yeah. As they slowly moved north and as the South slowly changed, 
through war and violence and federal insistence, over all these years, African-Americans have slowly gained more rights, but there's so much racism built into the society they have to live in. Whites did all they could from restrictive covenants to terrorism to keep white neighborhoods segregated. Their efforts were supported by the federal government, for example, through the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, which used redlining, their system of color-coded maps that rated neighborhoods, which we talked about in a previous episode, to make it almost impossible for most Black people to get a mortgage. And here's a little reminder. Redlining made it difficult, if not impossible, for Black people to own a home. They were often forced to buy on contract, which was a predatory agreement that was common for many years. With a contract, they would seem to own their home and have all the upkeep and responsibilities for the bills, but they were sold homes at inflated prices and they didn't get the deed until the house was paid off. It wasn't like a normal mortgage. So if they missed one payment, the house would be taken back and the family would lose whatever money they had previously put into it. So a major way wealth is accumulated by the white middle class is through private property. And black and indigenous people have been unable to accumulate wealth in this way. Another way to get ahead and potentially change your station in life is through education. African-Americans were blacked from this opportunity too. Black people were pushed into overcrowded neighborhoods with little resources, little money, and little education. Many of their neighborhoods became poor neighborhoods. And stayed that way to this day. I mean, there's all this research on it now. Black people at the time, through our history, were blocked from jobs with decent wages and from education. Even the Supreme Court, which doesn't surprise me anymore, has backed harmful legislation. The average per capita income of white neighborhoods is almost three times that of black neighborhoods. I heard this on NPR recently that white households average around 20 times as much as black households. 20 times, wow. Average, yeah. With poor healthcare and less resources, any emergency can send the black family deeper into poverty. Absolutely. It is true that black poverty has decreased and black education has increased, but the wealth gap and the education gap, along with the income gap, remains as the consequences of many years of poor treatment and racism. And even as black people advance their status, continued racism makes it difficult for their family members and children to maintain and continue to advance like white people do without thinking about it. There was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer recently titled Intersections of Injustice that demonstrates that redlining from many decades ago still causes certain neighborhoods to have enormously higher death rates from gunshots, much higher poverty, vacant homes, and lower life expectancy. So reparations. Yeah. Back to that. How does it make sense that the people that helped others accumulate tremendous wealth don't even get enough of it to educate their families, own a home, you know, in a decent place or have decent health care. Shouldn't they live in some amount of comfort at the very least? Even if you don't think they're owed something, don't you think it's the right thing to do? Yeah, I feel like we owe our fellow citizens the opportunity to live in a safe, comfortable, healthy place. We all should have that. Why should some people have that and other people not have that? So weird, horrible. Yeah. 
So historically, Black reparations were sometimes made. For some Quakers, membership depended on compensating former slaves. Some Quakers and others did give enslaved people their freedom, gave them land, provided for their education. Some seem to have felt guilty for owning slaves, even though um, some who expressed guilt only freed their slaves in their will. So basically they were slaves until the person died. And then after they were dead, they were freed. The slaves were freed. So, wow. Yeah. So it's like, I'm sorry, I have to make you carry me, feed me and keep me safe for our 3000 mile journey, but no worries. Once we get there, I won't make you carry me anymore. <laughs> Some people who argue against reparations actually argue that enslaved people benefited from the arrangement. I love that argument. It's like the arguments for imperialism that we talked about in the imperialism episode. Yep. Sure. <laughs> we taught the slaves the value of hard work, gave them religion, taught them to speak English instead of the languages they had, which nobody could understand. We don't owe them any more than what we already gave them. That is such a crazy, very negative, skewed point of view. But considering reparations for all of this, there are questions. Who will be paid? How much? Who will pay? Before he died in 2019, the longest serving African-American in Congress, Congressman John Conyers Jr. started every session of Congress beginning in 1989 by introducing a bill for Congress to study slavery and its lingering effects as well as recommendations for appropriate remedies. After his death, this bill known as HR 40 was continued to be introduced in the House of uh, by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. It keeps getting introduced, but nobody does anything with it. Yeah. It kind of seems like a no-brainer. The bill simply calls for a commission to study reparation proposals for African-Americans. In fact, it's called the Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African-Americans Act. <laughs> yeah. What could be the harm in supporting that bill? Studying the question, assessing possible solutions. All we're talking about is studying reparations. We study everything. We study the water, the air. We can't even study this issue. The bill doesn't authorize or even ask for any money or land for anyone. And yet it hasn't made it past introductions. Right. So much white income was derived from slavery and various policies and acts along the way. Even though we weren't there during the days of chattel slavery, and we may not think it's our debt to pay. We have all benefited and live today with the consequences. We see the consequences all around us every day. If we want an equitable world, we have to be part of creating that equitable world. We do, Julie. Instead, there have been years and years of sanctioned violence against Black people. Black schools, churches, and homes have been burned to the ground. Even today, we're watching Black voters and the political candidates who inspire them being intimidated and threatened with sometimes severe violence. On a daily basis, they are threatened now. We're in a crazy time. Yeah. Even certain policies that were created to help people in the working and middle class, like Social Security and unemployment insurance, excluded farm and domestic workers. These are jobs that were often held by Black people. When Social Security was first signed into law, 65% of African-Americans nationally and between 70 and 80% in the South weren't even eligible for it. 
That's just unbelievable. Yeah. The GI Bill also failed Black Americans. It offered low interest home loans and free college education, but Black people had a hard time collecting their share of that. Since redlining and rules about not selling property to non-whites existed at the time, it was extremely hard for Black veterans to get these benefits. Right. So there they are being offered, but they can't really be used. So it looks like the government's doing a good thing, but it's such a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. Black people still often have to work second and third jobs, making it hard to be home to supervise kids or help with homework or even go to school themselves. You know, it's obvious without money, you can't move into a decent neighborhood. You can't educate your kids, give them healthy food. You can't fix your house or your car. You need money to do all those things. You really do. And the country can never fully repay African-Americans. The idea of reparations is frightening because we might lack the ability to pay. And it threatens a lot of the things we've been taught about our history, about who we were then and who we are now the good guys and the bad guys, it turns it upside down. Learning this stuff doesn't make us feel good about who we are, about democracy, or about what we know because there's so much distortion in our information. And closing the gaps in wealth, education, healthcare, work, voting, it still won't even make up for all the wrongs and the damage and the trauma caused over the past hundreds of years. White supremacy makes it hard to close those gaps also, because as long as it's widespread, it keeps inflicting damage. It keeps undermining all the efforts that are made. Exactly. So Ta-Nehisi Coates asks, won't reparations divide us? And he also answers because he's brilliant. (laughs) He says, this is a quote, not any more than we're already divided. The wealth gap puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in distribution. What's needed is an airing of family secrets, a settling with old ghosts, a healing of the American psyche and banishment of white guilt. Wow, he is brilliant. Mm -hmm. He says that reparations would mean a revolution of the American consciousness a reconciling of our self-image as the great democratizer with the actual facts of our history. Yeah. It used to scare me to think about people wanting reparations. I think now that it was because it was too hard to think about how we could ever repay for the things that have been done, the things we've done. It's still hard, but now I know it's necessary. We can never make up for the past, but we have to try our best to bring equity into our present and into the future. So I'm not sure how it gets done, but it seems like it would have to be a combination of making up for the property African-Americans don't have and the equity in education that they don't have. It would mean that college and trade schools would have to be free so that they can go. And all along, it would have to mean a massive upgrade in the educational system to level the playing field. And, and this is the part that everybody cringes about, a massive distribution of wealth. One way that's talked about is through a guaranteed annual income because the lowest income brackets in the country are extremely disproportionately black, indigenous, people of color who haven't had the opportunity to accumulate wealth in any form. Think about it. We just give them a basic income and they can rise up and they have opportunities that we take for granted. There you go. 
there have been a lot of proposals for what reparations should look like. Some people put out ideas with some kind of math formulas to figure out what is owed to who. Some of them get quite complicated. Some advocates suggest direct payment and others talk about tax cuts or investments into black communities. I'm not sure how it could be done either, but it seems long past time to repair the wounds inflicted on our fellow humans and move forward somehow. I agree. A lot of what we talked about today came from ideas of Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's a former national correspondent for The Atlantic. He's also the author of several very thought-provoking and highly recommended books. One is The Beautiful Struggle, another's Between the World and Me, another We Were Eight Years in Power, and The Water Dancer. Take the time to learn more and be part of the movement to at least try to figure this out and do something. We're all responsible for caring for one another if we want to make the world a better place. Exactly. Thanks for joining us. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Till next time. Take care.